Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Great to have you with us. Uh, the ushers can go ahead and pass the, the plates, by the way. I think we forgot to mention that. That's all right. Uh, but you guys still doing okay? You awake? I know the chairs are comfortable, but I'm watching you. If I see you starting to fall asleep, I'm going to have them crank the heat down to 55, all right, just so we can keep it interesting in here. Uh, some of you may be wondering what happened to our old chairs. Um, if you've uh, not heard over the last few weeks, God kind of unexpectedly blessed us as a church with the opportunity for the chairs and the carpet. And so we were given our old chairs by Kentwood Community Church when we started out as a church plant. And so we thought, man, God's blessed us. We want to bless some other ministries. So just to let you know, there were three ministries that we were able to give the chairs away as a donation to just for free. Um, a good number of them went to the Muskegon Rescue Mission. And then another a large amount of them went to First Baptist Church in Cedar Springs. And then the remainder of uh, them went to a ministry called Grace's Table, which is also a ministry to teen moms in our area. And so praise God for that. We were able to give those uh, chairs away and do that. It's an awesome thing. We are in a series right now called Wonder. We're talking about the wonder of worship, especially as we think about the Christmas story and through the, the lens of the Christmas story. And a question that always comes up or a statement that gets made a lot of times whenever the conversation turns to worship I've heard people say this, maybe you've said this at different times as well, uh, but the statement is, man, I wish I could worship, but I just can't sing very well, <laughs> right? Like, I wish I could worship. I really, I, I'd love to be able to worship, but I, you know, I don't play an instrument. I don't sing. That's not really my thing. I can't sing very well. And, and when people say that, the reason we're saying that is because we've kind of unintentionally, I think, narrowed worship down to just kind of the singing and the musical element that we do here in church on Sunday mornings. Now, that is worship. In fact, that's a huge part of worship. We love that. David, uh, last week, began our series, and we talked a little bit about that. But if I could this morning, I want to broaden our definition a little bit of worship and what it is, even for those of us, if you don't sing or don't play a musical instrument. Um, when I was 20 years old, I was a ministry student at Indiana Wesleyan University, and I had to do a, a, an internship. So what I did for my internship is I was a worship leader for a high school youth group at a church in Indiana um, for, their, for their Thursday night gatherings. That was like what I did for my internship. So uh, I actually, uh, some of you may not know this, I play a few instruments and sing. I actually was the worship leader for Frontline for a number of years before I became the lead pastor. And so I remember it was a warm Thursday night in the spring and that was Thursday evenings was when we had our gatherings. And so I had the youth band, and we were all set up, and I had my guitar around my neck, and we were about ready to start the service. So you picture there were like 70 to 80 high school students in this youth room at this church. And we're just, the youth band's right there, we're just about ready to hit the first chord and go into the first song of the gathering. And right at this moment, the youth pastor jumps up on the stage, and he goes up to the mic, and he says to the 70 or 80 high school students that are gathered there, he says, hey, I, I don't want to alarm anyone, which by the way, as soon as you say, I don't want to alarm everyone, any, everybody is immediately alarmed. So I don't want to alarm anyone, but uh, we've just been told that there is a tornado warning out for our area, and we are actually in the path of the storm. The storm is headed right toward us right now. So here's what I need you guys to do. He said, in a very calmly, very uh, quietly, I need you all to exit out these doors. We're going to go down this hall, and we're going to go to this boiler room basement that's underneath the sanctuary of the church. And of course, as soon as he says that, what do all the kids do? <laughs> right? Everybody just freaks out. And there's this pandemonium, so now all the adults in the room are trying to calmly herd these kids like cattle down the hallway 
to this basement boiler room under the, and so what I did is I just, I was on the stage, I just unplugged my guitar. Uh, I didn't, because it was just happened so fast. I just kept my guitar around my neck. I just unplugged the cord from it and I just walked and I'm, I'm trying to herd these kids and we go down and we make it into this boiler room basement and it's dark and the ceiling is, is low. And so, I mean, we're just packed in there like sardines, 70 or 80 kids and we're all just there and it's, and it's, it's dark and it's kind of scary. And then we start to hear the storm, right? And the wind starts howling and we start to, to hear the storm battering the church and making all this noise. And these kids just start freaking out. All of us were, I mean, we were all scared. Everybody was just kind of on edge. And so the youth pastor at some point looks over at me and he realizes I still have my guitar on. That I managed to just sort of walk right off the stage. I still have my guitar around my neck. So he comes up to me and he says, hey, play something. Just play something. You got to keep everybody calm. Just, just, and so I'm like, oh, okay, okay, I'll play something. And I swear to you, I'm not making this up. The first song that popped in my head to play was the old REM song. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. Yeah, see, you think it's funny. Yeah. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was, you know, lighten the mood, take the tension down. They did not think it was funny at all. Nobody thought that was funny. The youth pastor didn't think it was funny. He comes up, he's like, stop, play, play something else. Just play something. So I'm like, okay. Uh, so, so I just started playing the worship songs that we were going to do for that night. I can't even remember what they were. It's funny, I can remember the R.E.M. song, but I can't remember the, <laughs> the worship songs for that night. So, uh, so I just started playing whatever those songs were, and they were familiar enough songs. That even though we, the kids didn't have the, the words in front of them, the most amazing thing happened. As we just started to sing those songs, those kids just went for it, those students. And like thunderously loud with every voice in this little basement, they just started singing these worship songs and just all out worshiping, just going for it. And as we kept going, it just got louder and more intense. And the students started getting down on their knees. And then, you know, they started confessing sins, like out loud, repenting of sins. Uh, they began to like talk to each other, forgiving each other, uh, of different things. It was just, it was one of the most powerful worship experiences, one of the most powerful moments I've ever been a part of. Our worship that night was focused on Jesus and it drowned out the sound of the storm and everything going on around us. And I, it, it, certainly it was partly because of our situation, right? We were scared, but it also was because we, of the one that we worshiped. We were focused on him, so much to the point that when finally when the danger had passed and the, uh, the storm had passed, thankfully we, weren't, we didn't get a direct hit from the storm. When it was safe to come out, there was a, a large group of us who actually just stayed down there in that basement boiler room for like another hour or so just worshiping because we didn't want to leave. We didn't want to leave that, that, that place because we were in the presence of God and, and it had just been such a powerful moment in our lives. I share that story with you to ask you this question. And the question is, what do we really need in order to worship? I mean, really, what do we actually really need in order to be able to worship? Is it a sound system? Is it lighting, adequate lighting? Uh, a, a projector that actually works? <laughs> so by the way, I love that our projector broke this morning. I think it's just perfect sermon illustration. It's God just sort of humbling us on this weekend where we have all these nice new chairs what, what do we really need? What do we actually need in order to worship God? Here's what I believe. I believe that what we are hungry for as human beings, 
at the core of our beings, what we are hungry for is not a better produced worship experience. You can spend millions of dollars having a better produced worship experience in church. Churches do all the time. Believe me. I don't think that's, at the end of the day, I don't think that's what we're really hungry for. I think what we are really, truly hungry for at the core of our beings is an encounter with the real Jesus. That's what we're hungry for. That's why we keep coming back. That's why we keep seeking after God. We are hungry for an encounter with the true Jesus. And that's what you see in the Christmas story. That, that's what people were in for in the Christmas story. Uh, if you were here last week, there are four songs, musical songs, um, poetic language that is used in the, uh, the Christmas story, the gospel account of Jesus' birth. In fact, so much so that these four different songs, one sung by Mary, uh, one by Simeon, one by Zechariah, and one by the angels, they were all, they've all been given these Latin names over the centuries in the, the church. So the Nunc Dimittis, the Benedictus, the Inexcelsius Deo, uh, the Magnificat, the, these fancy names for these songs and they've been put to music again and again and again. So there is music, there is singing, that is an element of the Christmas story, but there's also these other elements of worship. The wise men bring gifts. Uh, The shepherds fall down terrified in awe. That's what it says. That was their act of worship. When they encounter the angels and the news that Jesus has been born, they fall down, they're terrified in awe. And even the star, creation itself, plays a role in adoring the newborn king. Creation itself, it, through the star, is shining brightly and directing people to the person of Jesus. So what I want to do this morning is I just want to look at that part. When people encounter Jesus in the Christmas story, worship is expressed in a number of different ways. Singing, worship, worship happens, but in other ways as well. And I want to focus in on maybe some of those other ways as well. So this is Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. We actually believe they were from modern-day Oman is where um, they came from. So they arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to what? We've come to worship him. Now, what's interesting about this is that we're told later in verse 16 of Matthew 2 that it actually has been a two-year journey for the wise men. From the the moment they first saw saw the star telling them where Jesus was, it has been two years since they finally arrive in Jerusalem. That's how long it's taken them to go looking for the newborn king of kings. That's how long it's taken, which just begs the question, like, couldn't they have just sent a gift? A nice fruit basket, maybe? Sent something, a gift from Amazon or whatever it is? How, why did they have to take two years out of their life and go on this journey to find the person of Jesus? They, they, they do this to worship him. Say, so we, we've done this. We've gone two years of our lives. We've gone to find Jesus because we want to worship him. The word worship there is the Greek word proskuneo. And it's made up of two different Greek words, pros and then cuneo. Pros means to come toward and bow down, and cuneo means to kiss. So pros cuneo, we've come to worship him, we've to come toward, to bow down, and to kiss. And where this comes from is that was actually how you would greet royalty. 
in the, in the ancient world. The way you would greet a king or a queen is you would come toward them, you would bow down, you would humble yourself, and you would kiss the ground in front of them. That is how you would honor a king. And so that's the word, proskuneo, that word that they use. They say, that's what we've come to do. That's the word that gets translated into worship in this passage. Has nothing to do with singing. Has nothing to do with musical instruments. And we've made up songs about these guys, right? We three kings of Orient are, right? But they didn't sing anything. What they did instead is they, their act of worship, they brought gifts, their, their act of worship was bringing these gifts. And if you've grown up in the church, you've heard these gifts all your life. Let's just say them together. They are gold. Yeah, everybody knows that, right? That's the gifts they bring. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What Matt, what's interesting is Matthew actually doesn't tell us very much about the wise men. He doesn't seem that interested in helping us understand who their identity is. What he seems more interested in is showing us the importance that Gentiles came to worship the king of the Jews, the Messiah. And they, he was really fascinated with actually the gifts that they brought. He wanted us to see that these Gentiles who came to worship, um, that actually came to worship Jesus, that they actually uh, were, were coming from this place where they understood who Jesus actually was. And we see that in the gifts that they bring. So the first thing that they bring is gold. Gold would have been representative of royalty. In the ancient world, uh, gold was a precious metal just like it is today, but it was almost exclusively held by kings in their, in their court. So they bring him gold. They recognize at some level that Jesus is a king and he has a kingdom. Then they also bring him frankincense. Frankincense was used almost exclusively by priests. In fact, in Jerusalem at this time where they are, the, probably the only place where you would have found uh, frankincense would have been in the temple because that was the primary thing that the, the priests used was frankincense as part of uh, the sacrificial system. So they recognize that, that Jesus is a king. They also recognize at some level that he's a priest. A priest is a mediator between God and men. That's what a priest is. But it's not just that. They recognize not only is he a king with a kingdom, he, he's also a priest. He's a mediator between God and men. But they give him this third gift. It's myrrh. And myrrh in the ancient world represented suffering. In fact, it was the main spice that was used in embalming bodies. When Jesus died, uh, they would have used um, myrrh as one of the spices to embalm his body. Also, myrrh was used as a narcotic in the ancient world. Some of you remember in the, in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's dying, some people offer him a drink. It's wine mixed with Myrrh, right? Remember this? It's because that, that was a narcotic. They would have offered that to people on the cross to dull their senses in the midst of this horrifying pain. By the way, Jesus rejects that drink. He refuses it because he doesn't want his senses to be dulled. He has a mission on the cross, and he wants to be fully alert for even the suffering that he's going through. So, they, so at some level, uh, Matthew wants us to see, by including all these details, that the wise men, when they came, they understood that Jesus was a king that he was a priest, and that somehow his mission, what he had to do here on this world, involved suffering. He came to suffer, came to offer himself and to die a sacrificial death on our behalf. At some level, they understood this. And this was their act of worship, bringing these gifts. But that's not it. It's not, it doesn't just end with these wise men. The other element of the story is a star. 
The literally creation itself, a star is shining brightly, and that's what is actually leading these wise men to be able to find Jesus. Now, we think it's kind of weird a lot of times that, like, really there was a star? In fact, people have speculated all kinds of weird things, like, okay, maybe the wise men were like these, you know, pagan astrologers, and they were all into the signs and the stars and the zodiac and all that. Maybe that's why they found it. Other people are like, nah, they were actually part of the Jewish diaspora. They just understood what that meant, and um, they just came from this other land. We don't really know but, but what, what is interesting about it is that God chose to use creation itself to worship him and to point out that Jesus had been born. That shouldn't be so weird to us. We shouldn't be so surprised by that because you see this over and over and over again in the Old Testament, all throughout the scripture. Notice Psalm 19. Uh, Psalm 19 verses one through four says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. The star was a fulfillment of that passage of scripture. The star was creation itself doing exactly what it talks about, proclaiming the glory of God. That the created world itself is actually in existence for the purpose of worshiping God. Over and over again, you see this throughout the, the Old Testament. This is why, by the way, for many of us in this room, the place that we feel the closest to the presence of God is out in nature, right? Right? It's not in a room like this with a, with a great sound system and all that. For many of us, it's actually out in nature. It's because the heavens proclaim the glory of God. Creation is constantly always worshiping. Creation is constantly bringing worship to God. But it's not just creation. It's us too. Because we are a part of creation. Psalm 139 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We've been created. And as part of creation, we are called to join in with creation and bringing adoration and worship to God. That's what we were created for. The created world exists to worship God, to bring him creation. We are part of the created world. Therefore, our purpose, the reason we exist, is actually to bring God worship as well. Now, up to this point in the sermon, you've been very nice. You've been sitting there and you've been saying, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it. That's nice, Brian. But inside you're going, what does this have to do with me, (laughs) right? What does this really have to do with me? I'll tell you exactly. Here's what this has to do with you. Here's why this matters. Because as human beings, the question we are constantly asking is, what on earth am I here for? What's my purpose? What, what, am I, what am I designed to do? In fact, people will make meetings with me. I, as a pastor, I literally, I have people who will wait like two and three weeks to get a meeting with me on the calendar to sit down in a room and ask me the question, I just don't know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. That's a regular experience for me. I, you know, I have this job, I go to work, I take care of these kids, but at the end of the day, like, am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing? There's just sort of this, I don't know, what's my purpose? Am I really living out my purpose? Am I, what am I called to be doing? In fact, uh, not only do we ask that question, for us at Frontline, our vision is wrapped up in these five zeros. And one of uh, the zeros that uh, exemplify our mission is this idea that we are not done until there are zero unfulfilled callings. 
It's this idea that we believe that every single person, whether they know Jesus yet or not, whether you've surrendered your life to Christ yet or not, every single one of us has a calling. We have a purpose, some role that we're supposed to play in the kingdom of God. And when we find it, that that is our highest joy. It's our highest sense of fulfillment when we discover what our purpose is and and we're living into our purpose in the kingdom of God. We all have this sense. We all ask that question as human beings, what on earth am I here for? So if I could, I'd just like to offer this thought. This is the main idea this morning. If you want to know your purpose, learn how to worship. I'll save you the meeting with me. If you're you're struggling with that, what's my next step? I don't know what my purpose is. How do I discover? Worship. Learn how to worship. If if you want to know your purpose, at some point, any attempt to figure out what your purpose is, any attempt to figure out what on earth you're here for has to, at some point, begin with learning how to worship the one who created you. He knows because he made you. All of creation exists for the purpose of worshiping. We are part of creation. Therefore, at some level, if we want to know our purpose, we have to learn how to worship. We have to. It's not something just for other people who who happen to have nice voices and can sing. All of us have to discover what it means to worship God if we want to know our purpose in this world. I'll take it one step further. You've gone this far. Let Let me go this one step further. I would go as far as to say that when you have discovered your purpose, when you actually are living into your purpose, your God-given purpose in this world, and you are finding the joy and the fulfillment that comes with that, and you, are, you know that you're uh, fulfilling your role in the kingdom of God, actually that is your highest act of worship. For some of us, that's singing. For some of us, that's playing an instrument. But when you discover your purpose, what God has uniquely wired you to do, your talents, your abilities, your wirings, what he's given you, that is actually going to be your highest act of worship. We worship God and we bring him honor the most when we live into the purpose that he's called us to exist for. That's what all of creation is doing. That's what we are called to do. So the question then becomes, if I want to know my purpose, I have to learn how to worship. Then the question is, uh, how do I express true worship? How do I do that? What does it mean for me to express, express true worship? So this is my attempt to give you, if we, again, if we say, what do you really need in order to worship? If we strip it down into its basic, what exactly is worship? The best definition I can give you for what worship really is, is worship is responding to who God is with whatever it is that I have. How do I learn to express true worship? Basically, worship is a response. That's what it is. Worship is a response to who God is with whatever it is that I have. If it, whatever talent, whatever ability, whatever personhood, whatever it is, worship is responding to who God is with whatever it is that I have. I want to unpack that a little bit. Um, there was a French abbot in the 12th century. His name was Bernard of Clairvaux. It's maybe one of the greatest minds um, that France ever produced. And during this time, this time in the 12th century, he wrote something called a treatise on love. As some people call it the four loves. I'm going to share the first three of the four loves with you. Uh, what he did with these four loves is he developed, basically it's like a pathway. As we grow in Christ, as we develop, here's how we learn to love God. Here's how we learn to, to worship. And he, and he walked through this. 
And so uh, the first three, the reason I'm only giving you the first three is because the fourth one, he said, this fourth um, version of loving God, we only really will experience fully in heaven. And so the first three, he begins this way. He says, basically, the starting point for all of us is, I'll love me for me. This is our posture. (laughs) This is how we begin, every single one of us in life. It's basically a selfish love. It's, I'll love me for me. I'm only concerned with getting my own needs met. A great example of this is when people will say things like, like when a consumer loves a brand, you know what I mean? We'll say things like, man, I love Starbucks. I love Apple. You've heard people say this, right? What are they saying? They're not really saying, I love Starbucks, like I love the other. They're not really saying, I love Apple. What they're really saying is, I love me drinking some Starbucks. That's really what they're saying. I love me using an Apple product It's all love me for me. Basically, we love a brand basically just for what that brand means about us. It's really, whatever brands we love, it's really just a version of loving ourselves. That's all that really is. It's a completely self-focused love, all love me for me. This is where uh, we all begin and where we start. But what happens is as we begin to know who God is, as we begin to grow in our faith, as we begin to know who we are, What happens is this shift begins to make, and Bernard of Clairvaux says, we get to this point where we begin to say, I'll love God for me. So I'll love God. It actually is a love of the other. It is a love of God, but it's still a selfish love. It's I'll love God for his his blessings. I'll love him for me. Think about most of our prayers. I, I would actually argue most Christians are stuck right here. This is where most of us live our entire lives is the second layer. I'll love God, but it's all love God for me. Think about our prayers. God, I'll worship you. I'll love you. But God, will you protect me? Will you take care of me? Will you open this door? Will you close that one? Will you bless me? We love God, but it's we love God for us. And then what happens when God doesn't do what we ask him to do? What happens? People get mad. I, I've, I've talked to so many people. I'm angry at God. Like, really? You're mad? You're angry at God? The only reason we get angry is because we had some expectation I'm putting in this, I should be getting this back. That's the only reason we get mad was when some expectation has failed to meet us. I'll love God, but I'll love God for me. A great example of this is like how an infant loves its mother. So think about an infant. When a child is born, they are completely dependent on their mother to meet every single need of their life, right? So an infant loves their mother, but that infant doesn't really love the mother for any other reason than just for what the mother does for themselves. That's all they're capable of is loving their mother for what their mother does for me. This kind of love, even though it's where most Christians are, this kind of love still hasn't understood the gospel. I'll love God for me is still basically an attempt to say, I'll love God, I'll worship him, I'll serve so that I can attain or prove something or gain something or so I won't lose something It's still an attempt to sort of, by my efforts, I'm going to do this so that I get something in return. And this kind of love hasn't fully understood the gospel of grace yet. But Bernard of Clairvaux says, the greatest shift that happens in our lives, when we finally begin to understand the gospel, when we finally begin to really understand who Jesus is, what happens is we eventually get to this point where it's I'll love God for God. I'll love God, not for what he gives me, I'll love God for God. This is what you see in so many of the figures in the, in the scriptures. Think of, like, if you've studied the Old Testament, a great example of this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In the Old Testament uh, story, our, our, uh, the block, our children's ministry was just studying this story a couple weeks ago. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're in exile in Babylon. And they're told, either bow down and worship King Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylons, or we're going to throw you in this fiery furnace. We're literally going to burn you alive. And you remember what their response is, if you've read it? They say, you know what? We really hope that God spares our lives. If we're thrown in that fiery furnace, we really hope he spares us. But then the line, they said, but even if, even if he doesn't, we will not bow down and worship you. We will only worship God. I love God for God. Whether he does what I want him to do or not, whether he saves me or not, I will love God for God. Job is another example of this in the Old Testament. Job chapter one, the story, Job is a a wealthy man. He loses everything in chapter one of Job. A whirlwind comes in. Everything is just destroyed in his life. His children die. His crops uh, are destroyed. His herds, he everything, all his economic wealth, it's all stripped from him. Remember what Job does in chapter one when the news hits him? He falls down on his face, and the great statement he makes, he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. I will still bless his name. Whether he gives, whether he takes away, whatever I have, whether I deserved it or not, Bless, I choose to bless his name. That's I'll love God for God. Eventually, a person, as they grow up, they begin to love their mother this way, right? Like, I love my mom at this stage of life. I don't love my mom for what she does for me anymore. I love my mom at this point for who she is. I love my mom. But it's for who she is. We get to this point where we actually can love God for God, and this is what happens when we understand the gospel, we get to this point in our lives when we, un- when we really begin to understand the gospel, when we make this shift, what happens is we realize my, I realize my identity, my salvation is gifted to me by nothing more than Jesus' death and his resurrection on, on my behalf. So there's nothing I can do to gain. There's nothing I can gain, nothing for me to lose, nothing for me to prove. I am his. And when we grasp that, our only response to that is true worship. Worship is a response to who God is, to what he's done for us in the gospel with whatever it is that we have. And so what happens is when we love God for God, we begin to worship him, we begin to love him, and we begin to serve others, not for what we might get in return, but because that is actually our purpose and our reason for existing. I do it because it's why I exist. It's the greatest function of my entire existence (laughs) is to worship the one who rescued and redeemed me. It's a response to who he is with what I have. A couple weeks ago, I went to visit uh, what Jesse was just talking about a minute ago, up here, he was talking about the essential store. On a Wednesday night, I went, and, and I hadn't been in a while. And some of you may, may not realize, we have uh, this whole side of our building, if you're newer to Frontline, you might not know, is basically uh, occupied by two different ministries. One of them is called the Storehouse. It's a nonprofit that gives uh, back through partnerships to other nonprofits in a hand-up kind of model. And like literally millions of dollars has been transferred, and, and God has done amazing things through that side of the building the other part of this side of the building is what's called, is a store. It's called the Essential Store, and that's operated by Frontline. So there's a team of volunteers. Claudia and her team oversee um, uh, the Essential Store. And basically what it is is the, the One Initiative that Jesse was talking a minute ago. When you give to the One Initiative, it supplies items for the Essential Store. And so what's in the Essential Store is stuff that we all need, like toothpaste, 
uh, deodorant, toilet paper, shampoo, that kind of stuff that every month every, we all need. And families that are struggling in our area sometimes uh, need help um, to, to provide for. And so uh, basically on Wednesday night, I go in and I go into the store and people are coming and people can have a membership and come in and shop this store. And I went to basically just go, I hadn't been in a while, I just wanted to see people get stuff that we all need, right? And what I encountered on Wednesday night just blew me away. The way that this store has, has grown and the way it's matured is absolutely blowing me away from the, from the first days to now. What I saw a couple Wednesdays ago when I went is I walked in and volunteers are like praying with members who are coming in to shop. There's a, there's a table set up over, and, and their volunteers are sitting there at this table putting together puzzles with kids while their parents shop and get some things that they need. Uh, other volunteers are like helping people out with their shopping carts. And while I was there that night, there was a woman who came in and she accepted Christ. Claudia prayed with her as she, she accepted Jesus. Um, this past week, a lady who's been coming to our church for a, a few years now, she's been inviting her friend. It's been her one life, and she's been, you know, she, and she came into the office this week, and I met her, and it was like, oh, hey, it's great to finally meet you, and she just kind of wanted to see, I want to see what this place is like. Like, this is, like I'm not going to be asked to drink some Kool-Aid or something if I come in here, am I? She was just kind of like checking it out. She, accept, she came to the essential store Wednesday night, and she accepted Christ. So God is moving in a powerful way in this, in this ministry. And what blew me away as I was going and seeing this is that, you know, people are coming and they're getting stuff that's, that's just going to run out a month from now. And they're going to have to come back and they're going to have to get more stuff. But what they're actually getting when they're coming to the store is, is something much more eternal. It's something that won't disappoint. It's something that won't run out. It's something that won't let down. It's the love of Jesus Christ. That's what they're getting. Here's why I tell you that. What is happening in the essential store every Wednesday night is worship. Every bit as much as what we do in here on Sunday morning. It's worship. It's responding to who God is with what we have. The wise men had gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We have toilet paper. It's worship. Worship is when we find our purpose, our reason for existence in loving God for God, and we say, I'm gonna to respond to who God is with whatever it is that I have. That is our highest act of worship. What do you have? What do you have? What is it that God has called you and gifted you to do? We talked about how to end this service uh, today, and we said, you know, we're talking about how worship, it, it is singing, and it is, it is worshiping, and, but it's also more than that. And so we said, why don't we try to, uh, to challenge ourselves to, to experience something a little bit different? And so I'm going to invite you to lean into something a little bit. Uh, don't worry, in a minute, we are going to stand and we are going to sing, because we love that. We love singing. We love worshiping with song and with music. And uh, man, we've got an incredible team that leads us every single week, and we love that. But uh, let's do this. Uh, we're going to do something different where what I, I, we decided, why don't we um, just say, instead of me praying and we just go right into singing, what if we just enter into kind of an extended season of prayer? And so what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you, Charlie's going to uh, play <laughs> for a minute, and I'm going to ask you to just gather together in groups of three or four or five, whoever's near you, and just pray out loud together uh, about a couple things. First, 
Just begin by thanking God for something that you just take for granted every single day. Just begin with worship. Just begin with loving him for who he is. Maybe it's just, God, I just take, maybe it's just I take you for granted every day. Maybe it's just saying, God, I just, I don't even stop and think about, God, thank you for my family. Thank you for the fact that we're healthy. Thank you that you've saved me. Thank you that I didn't have to wonder today where my next meal was coming from. I don't know, what, whatever it is, just begin with gratitude. Start with gratitude. And then I want you to, to, to just pray for someone who doesn't know Christ to come to him this Christmas and pray for the courage to invite them. Pray for that out loud together. Because, because here's the thing, we aren't about chairs here. We're about the people who sit in them. That's what we're about. We're about people. What does it look like to just, just begin to pray? This occurred to me uh, first service and I said it. Charlie, who's up here playing, the first time Charlie ever came to Frontline is he was delivering a, a piano, a grand piano for one of our Christmas services. Charlie worked for a keyboard company. He was delivering it. And that's how he started coming to Frontline. And I still remember the service where you got baptized. That's what we're about. That's what God wants to do. That's why we exist. So it's responding to who God is with whatever it is that we have and watching him build the kingdom through that. It's our highest act of worship. So here's the thing. Um, I'm not gonna pray. I'm just gonna ask you to do this. So you gather together. If you came with uh, somebody, if you came with a group, or maybe there's somebody you don't know sitting across the aisle, this is a great chance to meet them. Um, if, if you came by yourself or this is a little bit hard for you, um, Nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's going to condemn you. That's not what this moment is about. If you sit there and you want to just be quiet and sit there quietly, that's completely okay. But for those of you who are able, let's just take some time right now. Let's gather together in groups three or four, and let's just fill this room up with the sound of God's people praying. And just thank him for something we take for granted, and then just pray for someone who doesn't know Christ, and pray for the courage to invite them um, as we look at Christmas services. Let's go.